You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 141 of the Apple Insider Podcast, where we discuss all things Apple, iPod, iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, and more. I'm your host, Victor Marks, with Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I'm well. I want to start off by mentioning that this marks the anniversary of Steve Jobs' passing. And Apple commented on this a little bit with their keynote for the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10 release about how much Steve Jobs still resonates with them as a company. And, and Tim Cook posted some words today about it as well, how Steve Jobs continues to inspire them. And I, I think it's remarkable and noteworthy to think a little bit about how unusual it is for a head of a company to resonate with people and to reverberate really so much so many years after his death mm-hmm. that we you know for from time to time when celebrities pass musicians artists that we we see a groundswell of support and remembrance of them when it happens and for a limited number of artists a few years after it happens but mostly we as a public forget and it is unique that Steve Jobs is remembered and revered and attempted to be emulated so much so many years after his death. Yeah, it's very true. I think there's something to be said for when it's so pervasive in your life to constantly be using products that he helped to bring to market and to innovate. Um, you know, it, it serves as a reminder on a daily basis. You know, it's interesting to me that we have we, we have so many quotes, but... There's, there's so many attempts to emulate his behavior, emulate his design process, emulate his way of thinking about things. And we see a lot of people who try and do that. And it's very easy <laughs> to say, you know, you're no Steve Jobs. I, I think, you know, we, we, we hear everyone's quotes, but the ones that, that I always think about are the ones where he talks about pushing the envelope and not accepting things as they are because you never find out what can be if you do. Right. And his advocacy for the consumer, you know, and, and a lot of people will we'll turn up their noses at that and say, oh, come on, with 20% margins and 30% margins, they were advocating for themselves, which, to be fair, is a little bit true. They they need to make money. But <laughs> they are a corporation. And, and, you know, having had years and years of rumors about their, their death of the corporation, you, you can't really fault them for wanting to make money. But it's at the core of every product that got released. There were technical reasons for the product, like iMovie. What do you, why do we make iMovie? We make iMovie because we have four gigabyte hard drives in, in 1998, and we need to figure out how you're going to fill them. Well, we'll fill mm-hmm. them with video. Fine, that's a technical <laughs> decision. But at the same time, was there a real problem with what people do with video? Well, yes, because people had stacks and stacks of VHS-C cassettes that they'd never done anything with. And right. before this, watching home movies was a bear, right? You know, come come over and see the uh, see my home movies, and everyone groans and says, "Do we have to?" <laughs> I mean, it really is the democratization of technology, making it accessible for everybody, and making it um, uh, something that 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 is not intimidating and something that you can actually get things done with. And so often, when people say, "Oh, you can't get real work done on an iPad." Uh, they seem to be missing the point that a lot of people are getting a lot of work done on iPads. It's just not the way that you do work. Well, the definition of work changes or the definition of the tools change, right? Right. And the access, as things get easier to use, that in many ways limits what you can do with it, but it also makes it so anybody can access it. And so the existing tools are still going to remain, but uh, you know, you can 
edit together a simple movie on iMovie, or you can make a feature-like production on Final Cut Pro. Um, and your skill level that you bring to it and the capabilities that you have uh, are going to determine what the the product, is, the final product is. But the, the point of it is, you know, to use your iMovie analogy, somebody could make a pretty good home movie with the built-in tools that are presented to them. Um, and they can make pretty neat stuff. You know, there have been there have been movies that have been submitted to film festivals and made it into film festivals that were cut in iMovie. I, I make great movie edits very quickly on my iPhone, and I've been doing it for years. I remember uh, it was probably like probably six or so years ago, six or seven years ago, I was on a cruise ship, and I had no internet connectivity. I shot a movie, edited it, and 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 then let my family watch it on my iPhone. But it's not just movies. You know, what you're talking about is the democratization right. of all computing. So right. in the 1950s, in 1960s, we used punch cards and we had hard drives that that could fit in the cargo hold of an airplane, but not smaller. Yeah. And with every generation, as these things shrink and become easier to use, they also become more widespread. In in 1981, the IBM PC or the the Apple II was reasonably widespread. It started being used in schools. Computers were taught with uh, BASIC or Logo, right? And then it spread. Then it got easier and easier and spread further and further. And so now we're getting to a point where we have touchscreens. We've had touchscreens for 10 years. Right. We're getting to the point where voice interfaces and voice-first technologies are becoming widespread. So instead of having to manually type in a question and phrase your search request just so, so that the proper Boolean terms are used to get the response that you want, you can simply ask and you can ask any one of a variety of voice assistants and get more or less the same answer, usually. And and th- that goes to point out, you know, so many of the things that you take for granted that you don't think of as a barrier to entry that are such a barrier to entry. For example, typing on a keyboard. That's something that you and I take for granted because we do it all the time. We're good at it and we don't even have to look at the keyboard. But for many people, they're hunt and peck typers. They're not very good at it. And so their entry on a computer is much slower and it's a it's intimidating for them to even get on there and fire it off an email or do anything. And that may sound stupid to a lot of our listeners because they have grown up using keyboards and they know how to use their computers and they can do this and that and whatever. But when we talk about the democratization of technology, we talk about making it accessible for everybody and even those people who never learned to type or who cannot type. Um, and having voice controls and having touch controls and having other ways of interacting with the device are those things that lower the barrier to entry and make it possible for anybody to be able to use this technology in a way that enhances their life. And I was reading a story not too long ago about a man in India who used the internet for the first time in his life, really. And he was not using it through a web browser, which is what a lot of people think of as the internet. You say internet, they say, oh, Google, right? Right. Google is not the internet. The web browser is not the internet. These are just vehicles for using the internet. The internet is the connected network that, that binds all of these things together. And so... For a person sitting in a train station in India using voice to ask for the train schedule and the weather is using the internet. And it's computing. Right. And it's it's solving a real problem for that user that traditionally would have had to have been solved completely differently. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating how these barriers get brought down. I used to work at a job where uh, a, t- a tutorial went out explaining to people how to do something. And it, the first step was go to Google and type in Yahoo. Awesome. That's good. <laughs> so I, I once... And everyone who did that has now had their uh, data exposed <laughs> three because three billion, billion people. Yeah. <laughs> no, I um, I once worked on a startup that shipped computers and small ruggedized servers into Tanzania. 
And the, the goal was to increase the ability to record good data for healthcare and to keep healthcare centers open that or traditionally would have had to have closed for at least one week out of the month. Yeah. You know, healthcare center closes and the next one's 50 kilometers up the road. You either make the hike or you die. So the idea was to keep these places open. And we had hardware that was donated from one of the computing manufacturers out in the valley. And we had to write documents to train them in English, French, and Swahili. And they'd never seen a trackpad before. So now you're writing, here's how a trackpad works. The things that you take for granted, right? How do you power this thing on? How do you charge it? How do you use the trackpad? Then what are you clicking on to try and open the interface for doing healthcare recording, right? And and we had to design a very reduced... Uh, electronic medical record system because you know if you throw the one that's used in in U.S. hospitals at them, it's overwhelming. Shoot, it's overwhelming for U.S. doctors too. You know that's why we have people in the U.S. whose sole job is medical record entry. And and thinking about those type of situations is what uh, helps set Apple apart as a company because Apple goes very slowly in how they develop their software. Uh, and their hardware for a number of reasons. And one of those is is accessibility and familiarity and ease of use of the product. You know, one of the uh, old jokes about um, about Android uh, from Apple executives is that you need to be a systems integrator to understand how to use it. Certainly there are people out there who want new features and are excited about them and want to be able to do that kind of stuff. But then there's just so many people who go, oh, you changed how the control center works again? Geez, they throw their hands up and they get upset over it. And so it's a delicate balance where you say, how do you continue to innovate and continue to push the platform forward and continue to uh, excite people while also giving them a familiar experience that doesn't intimidate or draw up walls or barriers or prevent you from wanting to to buy this product. And that's why, again, we've talked about this many times in the podcast, but it's so important that the iPhone 10 is coming out alongside the iPhone 8, because for a lot of people, the interface of the iPhone 10 and the way that they interact with it and the way that there is no home button, there's no this, there's no that, uh, there's going to be a lot of tech savvy people that are excited about that and want to embrace the change, but there are going to be a lot of people that are afraid of that change and who are uncomfortable with it, not familiar with it, and intimidated by it. You know, I would say that Apple is not slow as much as they are deliberate. Well, yeah, but but compared to, you know, a, a fast-paced tech world where, you know, some of these companies out there is just throw whatever at the wall and see what sticks. You know, Google had this event yesterday where now you can – it's like the HTC phone that came out a few months ago. Now you can squeeze the phone to invoke the uh, the assistant. I mean, who asked for that? How is that any better? Yeah, how is that any better than a button? I I, I don't know. And and that's not to say that Apple is perfect in this stuff too. You know, the the utility of 3D touch, you know, three years into it now is still somewhat questionable. Um, but uh, you know, th- this is how companies do it. They put stuff out there and see what they can to innovate. And Apple certainly innovates, but they do it at a pace that is not as desperate as some of their competitors. And it actually works to Apple's advantage because it's a little more measured and a little more thought Let's out. Let's talk about the development of Siri for a moment. So Siri was announced as a purchase alongside the iPhone 4S, but it was about that time frame, right? right? 2000, yeah. what, 10 or 11. Yeah, Siri actually started out as an app on the App yes, Store. from SRI. Yep. And at that time, when it was initially an app, it worked with a ton of services and it had a ton of predictive behaviors. You know, the I, I recall reading that when it was still that app, you could do things like it would know when you'd been out drinking by where you'd visited with bars in, in geolocation and how late it was. 
and would predictively ask to call you a cab and then call you the cab. And it integrated with a ton of services, integrated with Yelp, integrated with Uber, integrated with all these kinds of things so that it could do these predictive interactions. And the, the creators of it were sort of bemoaning the fact that their, their baby had been crippled, that a lot of the yeah. functionality got reduced along the way. And my perspective on this is that Apple reduced all the functionality, both because they didn't need to have all those partnerships established at the get-go. They could reestablish them as they did later. But that they wanted to pull it back so that they could internationalize it. The initial version was not very well internationalized, so yeah. it worked great in America, worked great for English speakers, although not very well for British speakers at the time. And uh, because that's that's one of the things that I noticed is that there are a number of proper British English speakers who have difficulty with Siri. <laughs> and so they pulled it back, they refactored it, they, they internationalized it, and then added the services back. And along the way, they've discovered that people talk to it seeking advice, uh, help with personal questions. And mm -hmm. so they've been hiring psychoanalysts. They've been hiring people in, in the psychology and, and neurology fields to try and really understand how they can better respond to those kinds of requests. And mm -hmm. they recently acquired init.ai. And init.ai was originally a customer service kind of, of natural language processing site, which touches on exactly, you know, people when they're seeking customer service, they're irate, they're upset, they're frustrated. And this is the sort of thing that hard drive recovery services learned a long time ago, is that, you know, you address the practical problem, person's hard drive has failed. But at the same time, you have to address the personal problem of, of how to help people through that tragedy. And uh, I think it was Drive Savers that years ago hired psychologists to be able to address this. And, mm -hmm. and so here Apple is pulling in that kind of AI project to make Siri be that more capable. This is something that Google's had to learn as well, by the way. You mentioned Google's event. Um, you know, Google, when it first released the uh, Google Now voice assistant and then later the Google Assistant that does OK Google. Right. Actually, they both responded to OK Google as the prompt word. But, but nevertheless, that's the later development of the AI. Uh, it initially had a hard time understanding people that weren't Americans. One of the things that they said in um, yesterday's keynote that I found pretty interesting was that uh, Google's assistant does not understand children very well. So they spent a lot of time uh, tweaking their algorithms so that they could understand children better because obviously their speaking abilities are not as well formed, well -formed as, as an adult. Um, but, you know, going back to your point about Siri and how Apple stripped a lot of the stuff out of it. Um, and then I was thinking about this, uh, yesterday, uh, during when the Google event help, was held on Wednesday and they're talking about tracking children's voices. I think part of it too, is there's a, there's a creep factor, you know, um, uh, just like we, when we saw, we knew it was going to happen. And of course this happened with face ID, people feeling uncomfortable about their face being scanned. How does this work? How well is it going to work? I don't, where's the data going? That sort the of thing. The idea of Google listening to your children is a little spooky to you. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we now can hear your children better than, than before. Well, but, but, but wait, uh, okay. so is that what I here's, want? Here's what happens. First of all, when they got Google home and, and Google assistant out into the world, they suddenly learned how to handle all of these voices that they weren't able to understand before. So with all the additional data and all of the additional beating on it, they were able to now address about 95% of the speaking world. And it's it's really 
great when you do comparisons between Alexa and Siri and Google. Google does very well at understanding people. They were missing the step with children. And one of the things they market these devices to is you have all of the wealth of the Internet's knowledge hidden behind a search engine. And kids are naturally inquisitive. So you want to be able to answer their questions. Do you? That depends on what they're asking. Because <laughs> I remember asking my parents questions as a kid that they didn't want to touch. Do we really want Google answering that for you? Fair point. Very, very good point. <laughs> but uh, I don't I, I, there, there are, when we talk about the democratization of technology, Google's answer to where babies certain... come from is probably not necessarily what all parents want. But right. you you do want to be able to have it be able to understand and respond to homework style questions, for example. Sure, yeah. Th- this is the thing. And, and having a product and a product development team that sits in Mountain View and is isolated from the rest of the world and stuff works in Mountain View but doesn't work anywhere else is not helpful to anyone. Right, exactly. But, you know, so going back to the Google event, they had another thing yesterday. So they brought Nest up on stage. Uh, and Tony Fidel is no longer there. Now they have a, uh, someone that I had never seen before. This woman was in charge of Nest. And they go up there and they're all excited about all these things that they're announcing. One of the things that they have is integration with uh, Google Home and, and uh, all these other products. You know, so basically you can get an alert on your your speakers and your TV and whatever else saying, Oh, so-and-so's at the front door because they they scan their face and they know who's at your front door and they let you know. And it's like, this is just creepy, man. Like, I don't I don't want to I don't want a camera to just be scanning people's faces at my front door. So and, you're the and you're the dude that's gonna be kind are. of covering your face. I it's just it's just weird, you know? There like just are, let me know somebody's at the front door and okay. then show me the camera and I'll know who they're fair I don't enough, need to be told. This is where things are going. There are cameras everywhere. And all of those cameras are going to have AI behind them to identify things. We already have it with license plate reading cameras, right? And anytime you're in a public space, your your face is more than likely captured on camera. So sooner or later, this is happening. The fact that but it's this happening is where a at slow and steady door is is just a different artifact of it, right? You you're expecting that you have some privacy standing in front of someone else's door versus being in a public square. Anything like that, yeah. You know, this is where a slow and steady approach works so much better. We just had Google, or we just had Yahoo reveal that it was three billion accounts were compromised. What could go wrong? Everything could go. Or wrong. the Equifax hack, really, for that matter. The Equifax hack affects sixty percent of adults in the United States. Like, you know, let, let's 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 talk about this for a minute. You know, if you think about the privacy implications of this and what risks are at hand here, this is a company, Google, who. Uh, knows who's at your front door and when they're coming by. They know when your packages are getting delivered. They know what the temperature in your house is. They know where you are in the house. They know what you're searching for. They know what your kids are searching for. And what do they do? They're an advertising company. They they let them well, hook up a camera to the front. Your, hold I mean, up. like even if the data hold is anonymized, up. they still know so much stuff. It's too much. I have a question. It's too much. I have a question. Yeah. So they hired Osterlo, who was the head of product over at Motorola, and he's been running product at Google for about a year. Yeah. And they released two phones. They've released yep. cameras. They've released doorbells. They've released smoke detectors. They've released thermostats. They've released a laptop. They've mm-hmm. released... They, there's a lot of hardware going on here. Yeah, there is. So are they a hardware company that happens to also do advertising? Or are they an advertising company that happens to also do hardware? Because it seems to me that it's harder and harder with every day to say that they're not taking hardware seriously. No, I, I think they're taking hardware very seriously. I don't dispute that at all. Um, 
but they and they're and they're pushing more toward the premium end of the market. But if you look at the phones they announced this week, you know the Pixel Two and the Pixel Two XL. Uh, still, uh, the the Pixel Two is is a five inch phone that is priced at six hundred fifty dollars, and it comes with a free fifty dollar Google Home Mini speaker. So, uh, not a cheap product lineup, but certainly not in the super premium level either. Uh, they announced the Pixel Book, uh, the new Pixel Book this week, and it starts at a thousand bucks for a Chrome OS laptop. That certainly it runs Android apps. It r- runs Android apps very poorly, yeah. apparently. Um, that is not a cheap product by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly not the most expensive laptop you could find out there either, especially for a thin and light. Uh, Apple's 12-inch MacBook comes in at $300 more and doesn't have a touchscreen. So, you know, um, I, I wouldn't say that they're, they're they're certainly not going for like the low-end budget end of the market like they started out with when they did the Nexus 7 and stuff like that. Um, they're they're trying to push a little more premium, which is the same thing Apple's doing, and you can see a lot of the market heading in that direction. Samsung's trying to do the same thing. Um, everybody wants to get away from the commoditization of this stuff and differentiate their, differentiate their products in some ways. Is Google a hardware company? Uh, I mean, how many of these are they selling? Uh, you know, they, how many phones did they sell in the last year? Probably not that many. Um, they weren't able to keep up with demand. They couldn't manufacture them, and and there's no sign that they sold you know tens of millions of phones or anything like that. They didn't announce any sales this week for certain. Uh, so, I mean, hardware has to be such a small fraction of what they do. Now you got to start somewhere, but still, at their heart, they're an advertising right, company. Right, but but they're um, seeing. I mean, do you call Facebook a hardware well, company on. because now they sell the Oculus? Mm, slightly different, but I'll explain why. Google is seeing their advertising future evaporate. And I, I say this because the, the primary way you access Google and get Google advertising is through the browser. Right. And when you access it through a voice-first system, you don't get these ads. Right. When you access it through your phone and you're accessing it through OK Google or uh, now Siri because Siri has switched over from using Bing search to Google search – you don't get these adverts. And so where's that advertising revenue going to be in the future? It's still there today, I agree. But in the future, is it a, a much less percentage of their revenue? I don't think so, because the screen isn't going away. Just because we're changing how we occasionally interact with these devices, you're still going to be looking at a screen from time to time. You're going to be on YouTube. You're going to be on your TV. You're going to be on whether it's a tablet or a computer or a phone. You're going to be looking at a screen at some point. And the difference is now that they're they're getting into all these other facets of our lives where we may not be advertised to, like adjusting the temperature in our home, they can still use that data to target ads when you are on a screen and the collection of all that data allows for the ads to be even better uh you know and the way that they go about it is a little different from facebook facebook wants you to share everything with your friends and then willingly give up all this information uh google wants to make your life easier with hardware products and software um, which then allows them to know more information about you and, and to be clear knowing information about your customer is not necessarily a bad thing it certainly has allowed google to make huge advance and advances in machine learning and artificial intelligence the likes of with apple has struggled with which is why google assistant returns much more dynamic results than siri does 
you know, the num- a number of times that when you ask Siri to uh, to look something up for you, and it just goes, well, I here's don't know, puts his hands up and then returns, <laughs> yeah, here's a Google search, you know. It's not a great response, but the reason for that is because the amount of data collection that Google does allows them to be able to do those types of things, whereas Apple has historically been reluctant to collect that kind of data. And actually... There was a problem a few years ago where they had a brain drain at Apple because researchers who have legitimate purposes to want to know this this information to create better applications and and to understand things better were not allowed to collect to the degree that they could do at other companies. So they were leaving Apple and going elsewhere because it was frustrating for them. Apple has responded to that by opening up a little more. Now they're allowing them to publish research papers so that they can be you know seen out there and kind of make a name for themselves as researchers. And those are changes that they've had to make. But again, Apple goes slowly. And sometimes going quick and embracing things can be good. But when it comes to privacy and security, I would rather see a company like Apple take a slow approach than somebody who just throws everything at the wall. I mean, you see what happened with Facebook and the election last year, and now they finally come out and admitted what went on that they didn't even understand what was going on. It shows you they can't even control their own house. They didn't even realize. And Twitter, the same way. They had advertisements that were going up there with, you know, quote unquote, fake news from from Russian opera that were financed by the government that were being put up there and they didn't even know they weren't even on top of it they couldn't handle it and so then you know now you have congressional hearings coming in and looking into this stuff because the question is how much can we trust these companies with this kind of data and how much can we let them into our lives and that's a great example of, of where it goes wrong and how it can go how it can go poorly so i want to take a break from from google insider for a moment and <laughs> talk about one of the rumors that we had because you you mentioned the 12 inch macbook in conjunction with the uh, pixel book so right one of the rumors that we, we published about on friday was about the idea of apple changing away from intel processors to arm processors for future macs right and this is something that you and i have talked about at length in years past it's it's something that comes up from time to time where we talk about what are the the possible savings here? Well, the possible savings are power and heat and cost and Apple, the benefit to Apple is having a vertical stack that they control. And not having a reliance on Intel, which has held up MacBook updates for many times now because Intel didn't have chips. Yeah, right that vertical stack that they control. Yep. The thing that makes this rumor interesting now is that in years past, the Apple A-series chips were not really feature competitive or speed competitive and benchmarks and benchmarks have their own problems, but they, they, they were about half as fast as what anything Intel offered. And now with the A11 fusion chips with the, well, not fusion bionic chips, the A11 bionic, it looks as if they are neck and neck. Do you think it's a fair assessment? You know, it's so hard to say. I mean, Apple's custom processors in the iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, et cetera, are undeniably head and shoulders above the competition when it comes to the mobile space in terms of phones and tablets. Um, The problem is you can't really get a fair apples to apples comparison when it comes to uh, these devices. And it's even more difficult when you're comparing it to like a desktop or or laptop computer, because 
running different platforms, completely different architectures, completely different software. So, you know, we've seen some benchmarks, you know, there's things like Geekbench and, and you know, they give you a, a number that's kind of out there. I don't even know what that number really means. And it's like, oh, this is as powerful as a MacBook. Is it really? I, I don't know. It's running a lightweight operating system, has uh, less RAM. Um, you know, th- there's different different factors that you have to take in when you do these sorts of comparisons. I think that um, certainly Apple's chips are very powerful, whether or not they're powerful enough to replace a... Um, a you know a MacBook chip, I, I don't know. Unless you know, I'm sure somewhere in Apple's secret labs they have a version of Mac OS running on a custom ARM chip, undeniably. And I think it's inevitable that it's going to happen. Apple's been pushing in that direction for a long time, and I think it'll be great for Apple when it does happen. But um, if they're there yet, I don't know. It's 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 really impossible so, to say. So first of all, Geekbench. Geekbench 3 scores are calibrated using a Mac Mini from 2011 with a Intel Core okay. i5 running at 2.5 gigahertz. And they, they just assigned that as the baseline with a baseline score of 2,500 points. Higher scores are better mm-hmm. with double the score indicating double the performance. And so what they do is they run basically three tests as I read it. They do an integer performance test, which mm-hmm. uses tests and tasks that make heavy use of integer intensive instructions which are CPU instructions. They do floating point performance tests. So floating point workloads measure FPU performance across intensive tasks that do floating point operations. I know to sound repetitive. Um, Floating point tends to be important in video games and content creation, stuff like that. And then they do memory benchmarking, which just measures memory bandwidth. How fast can they read and write to the, the memory? And so they use those different tests to make the overall score for the system. And yes, when you're doing it, you're testing also what the operating system will allow you to do in terms of talking to the metal. But by doing the same tasks across these different platforms, that's what makes it a benchmark, right? That's We're trying to compare the same things. Well, we're trying, but it's not when you're not running the same platform, it's not, it's not a direct. The world isn't perfect. (laughs) We wish it's not a perfect world. You know, I saw a test that was done a few months ago that was more interesting to me um, than these Geekbench tests, and it was a uh, it was iPhone eight versus uh, the latest, you know, Galaxy Note mm. or whatever. Um, but it was a conversion of a video file, and on the iPhone, it took uh, like thirty seconds, I believe, and on the the latest Galaxy, it took like two mm. minutes. And, uh, you know, that was a real world output of a product and it was using the same app that was available on two platforms and stuff. But still, you know, when the underlying architecture is different and the hardware and is the different. And the app is different. It's, it's the same app, but they had to rewrite it. Right. So it's not the right. same code. It's, it's, yeah. but there are problems. It's not. There are a lot of problems with it. And so until we get a MacBook running Mac OS out in the wild and can put it side by side with a MacBook running Mac OS on an Intel chip versus an ARM chip, uh, you, you can't really say. Well, we don't know. There are these benchmarks out there that say, you know, I had a buddy that was asking me about a couple weeks ago. He goes, oh, I heard the iPhone 8 is more powerful than a than an entry-level MacBook Pro. And it's like, uh, I mean. I, well, for so, so the answer is for some tasks measured some ways. Right. Correct. And I'm looking at a chart here, and the chart has a list of Core i5s and Core M3s and Core M5s, uh, also the Exynos and the Kirin processor and the Snapdragons, and it compares them all. And it's comparing the Geekbench scores, both single-core and multi-core scores. And 
the A11 Bionic is showing up as faster than the Core i5-7360U. It's showing up by, mm, let's say, about a thousand points faster. The A10X Fusion is neck and neck with that Core i5, but these scores are all about double that of the Snapdragon and the Kirin, and, and definitely the Exynos, which comes in a little slower than the Kirin and the Snapdragon. So what this says to me is that if we used the A11 Bionic or even the A10X Fusion in a 12-inch MacBook instead of the i5 ULV processor, and the ULV is important because that is the ultra-low power version of the chip. Right. Those three letters make a big distinction in its performance. Just as the A10 Fusion versus the A10X Fusion is also, uh, for single-core, about double the performance. For multi-core, it's, it's more or less the same. But that X makes a big difference. Until it's running Mac OS and, you know, multitasking, running, you know, 15 apps at once, uh, powering a 13-inch, 12-inch display or whatever. Yes. Uh, you know, there's just so yes, many, there are too many variables. The, the thing to remember is going back to 2001 to 2005 timeframe, Right. In 2000, in, in, well, honestly, in 1998, what became OS X was running on Intel's. When, when Steve Jobs returned to Apple and all of the next people came over, they were con considered barbarians because they were bringing Dell computers with them because that's what they developed Rhapsody on, right. right? And then they were able to compile and run Darwin and then OS X on PowerPC. And then along about 2001, 2002, they compiled it for Intel because Steve had a meeting with Sony and he wanted to show up running OS X on the best Sony laptop. So they went over to Fry's and bought a Sony laptop, Sony Vio, and compiled it for Sony. And it uh, it became what they called Marklar at the time. And then that eventually got released as OS X for Intel and Intel Mac in 2005. This kind of transition can happen. Right, we had Rosetta. We, first, right. we had fat, fat binaries for years that had both PowerPC and Intel binaries in applications. Mm -hmm. And then after we got uh, sort of moved away from fat binaries, we had Rosetta that interpreted the PowerPC instructions, so you could keep things going that way for a little while. And then all of those things got retired. And so doing an ARM transition is not impossible. It's not outside the realm of. of belief. You know, it's, we aren't disbelieving it. There are a lot of reasons why it's totally possible and totally interesting to Apple to do. The reason we're talking about this is because there was a rumor that cropped up last week that Apple is looking to, and they're pursuing very seriously, putting ARM chips in Macs. And this is not only something likely to happen, I believe it's an inevitability. I think that they're pushing in that direction. And it just makes too much sense for them not to do it. I think that the way that the transition takes place is you start with the 12-inch MacBook, and unlike the Intel transition, which Apple tried to get through as quickly as possible, you may be in a world for years where we have Intel Macs and ARM Macs. And the reason for that is because while the ARM may be in a place to uh, replace the Intel chip in a 12-inch MacBook ultralight uh, kind of form factor... Uh, for pros who use a MacBook Pro, and certainly even more so for an iMac or a new Mac Pro, uh, having those run on an ARM chip, uh, that's not really where the, the benefits of, of ARM would come into play as much um, in terms of the platform. I, so I think that yeah, I, it's very likely that you see it first and foremost in the 12-inch MacBook, and maybe only in the 12-inch MacBook for a few years, if not longer. I, I take a slightly different view. So the reason that the Intel transition happened the way it did and as quickly as it did was because the bottleneck was IBM's inability to supply a PowerPC G5 mobile chip 
the power yeah. book was frozen at G4 and you could have an iMac G5 and you could have a, a power Mac G5, but you couldn't get a mobile G5. And so right. the only choice was to move to Intel to keep from falling behind. Here, Intel's inability to deliver on some things is an inability to deliver. For instance, the the initial complaint about the Mac proposed being stuck at 16 gig of RAM instead of 32 gig, like the desktop chips. Yeah. But it's not a crippling inability yet. The transition does happen the way you say it does, although I think it could also encompass other lightweight mobile devices like the, the MacBook Air if it continues to live on for whatever reason. Well, I think the MacBook Air is the, dead. The uh, only reason it continues to exist is a price point of $999. Yeah, the, the Mac so, Mini that's coming back or is sold to be coming back. The I, I, I yeah, think we'll there are, you could do it for some iMacs, not the iMac Pro. I think you could do it for – and that's probably about it, I think. I don't think you, – you're not going to yeah, get a yeah, Mac I don't, Pro I don't think you could it. do it for a MacBook Pro. And not, definitely not a MacBook Mac Pro. And MacBook, you know, Pro you could get the 13-inch um, MacBook Pro without Touch Bar out of it. But you know what? I, I got to say something here. Stop everything. I got to say because Apple, in a way, has already done this. If we're being really honest with it or with with you, our listeners, Apple's already put ARM chips in MacBook Pros for the Touch Bar. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. The Touch Bar is running on an ARM chip. It has a secure element for for. Mm-hmm. And it works in tandem with the Intel chip. And it's it's working on a system running Mac OS X. Mm-hmm. So this is how it begins. I, y- Using the, the, the fuzzy scratched up crystal ball, I'm going to say that this is probably based on this resurgence of a rumor, probably about three years away. Could be sooner than that. Could be sooner than that, but it, it, three years feels like the right kind of time frame. Just based on history, right? We started hearing about Intel rumors when they started doing it in about 2002. It... They were released in 2005. I mean, Apple really wants to get the price down on that 12-inch MacBook. You know, you mentioned the MacBook Air. The only reason it exists is to hit that sub-$1,000 price point because they sell a lot of computers there. There's, It's a psychological barrier and a financial barrier for a lot of people to get up to that $1,300 starting for a 12-inch MacBook. So you got to think, if they could get costs down enough and introduce an ARM-based 12-inch MacBook and even with like a touch bar or something at that $999 price point, they would sell a boatload of those things. If they could get like 15 hours of battery life out of it with an ARM chip and do everything that you're doing now. And then consider this, you know, one of the reasons that they would be that they would have a hard time, and a lot of listeners are going to scoff at this, but it's true. One of the reasons they would have a hard time switching the MacBook Pro and some other uh, higher end models is not just the horsepower of an Intel chip, but also the ability to run Windows. And a lot of people either run it in parallels or some sort of VM uh, version, but they also dual boot because they have to access certain Windows apps. And so for the people that are buying a 12-inch MacBook and for the vast majority of people who, you know, are are on iOS and iPhone or just have their stuff in the cloud, they won't care. But for professional users, there is a need for Windows. But what about this? Consider that you already have an entire platform of apps that are designed for iPhone and iPad that scale to different screen sizes. And you already have a 12.9-inch iPad, which is basically the same screen size as a 13-inch MacBook Pro. What if you scale those iPad apps to run on a 12-inch MacBook? You now have the largest and and most polished app store on the planet on your your consumer-focused notebook. I, I believe it. You know, and it makes development interesting, too, because you no longer need to run the simulator right. for simulating your app development on the laptop. Yep. Well, this is a good time as any to mention that I hold a small number of shares of Apple stock, 
So take it for what you will. This is an inform. This is my opinion. It's it's not based on any specific knowledge. It's just a commentary on the rumors that are going around. And if you believe it, great. If you don't, fine. But no, no, that's those are my holdings. It's fun to think about. Definitely, definitely, definitely fun to think about. Another thing that I think a lot about, and I, I know this one doesn't necessarily tickle you the same way it does me, but I I keep thinking about Apple's acquisitions, particularly their investment in the micro LED space. No, I find this very exciting. You're wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm very enthused about this, especially as an Apple Watch fan. Well, I'm glad to be wrong. So, <laughs> and you, you, I know some, some of our listeners will say, Victor never says he's glad. To be, no, I'm glad to be wrong on this. I'm glad you're interested in this one because I think that the display is one of the spaces that can truly stand to be innovated in. And, and there's been a lot of innovation already. You know, we've seen the uh, the, the True Tone display and the Retina display and the, the deeper wells for the pixels kind of demonstration that Phil puts on at keynotes. But I really do think that this is a place, by getting the pixel size smaller, by reducing power demands, by increasing resolution and contrast uh, and brightness, that it means that we can do things with displays that simply weren't possible before. Whether that's right. longer life wearables or more immersive virtual reality, I think those things change the way we use these devices. You know, right. what, what does it the mean when you have an Apple Watch that could go two weeks without a charge versus the one that needs to be charged every night or every other night? What does it mean when you have augmented reality that is so clear that you, you have difficulty telling the difference between what's real and what's superimposed? What does it mean when that display is light enough and low power enough that you can clip it to the side of your sunglasses as opposed to the uh, the thing that you have to hold in your hand or wear on your wrist? Right. And that's all f- much further down the road, I think, than than the more immediate implications of it, because a lot of that is going to require, uh, you know, advanced battery technology paired with uh, superior displays uh, that are super low power. Right. When uh, the display requires you know, almost no power, everything else still does. Right. right uh, yeah. LTE There's radios still, going still on draw there. power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which we know very well with the Apple Watch Series 3 and it's whopping four hours of battery life when running on LTE. But, you know, we talked about this a while ago on the podcast before we really knew that the this year's Apple Watch was going to have LTE. And we said, okay, you got three main shortcomings, essentially, with, with the Apple Watch that are obvious to be addressed in terms of the hardware. Number one is battery life. It only lasts a day for most people. Number two is LTE, which we've now addressed, but we see that still is a problem with number one, battery life. And number three is an always-on display. Having a watch display that is not on and you have to do a motion to turn it on is a little awkward and a little weird. And the the question becomes, if you need to address those problems, which one gets the priority? We now see this year that rather than going for two days of battery life or an always-on display, Apple decided that LTE was more important. So we still have those two remaining, the, 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 and they can both be satisfied in some ways by a micro-LED display. Um, this technology makes more sense on smaller, low-power devices, and I don't think that you would see it on an iPhone first. I think you would see it on an Apple Watch first. But uh, if you were able to reduce the power consumption, the question becomes, what would Apple's priority be? Would it be to have an always-on display that lasts a day, or would it be to get an extra day out of it? I think, and this is just my guess, that Apple would want to try and balance those two. There are a number of people who complain about always-on displays. This isn't as good as my regular wristwatch. But Apple Watch isn't necessarily for those people right away. 
right? Right. If you're the sort of person that's already wearing a wristwatch and wants to have an always-on kind of thing, like an analog watch, it's you're you're the one that they're not going after. You're they're going after people who may have never worn a wristwatch and are now going to, and they're succeeding at that so far. The so so that's not as critical as the how can we make it last longer. I would disagree. I think that they've already established that the battery life is a day and people are used to charging it every night and they're used to charging all their devices at night. Um, I think that uh, the always on display, you know, you talk about a watch as a fashion device. It's just weird when you have it, you know, your arm down by your side, it's just a black monolith on your wrist. It's not a, um, it's not a, it, it, it doesn't have that display on. I think that it, it would make sense to have some sort of a low power mode um, just like you have on many phones now, the technology is already there with OLED displays uh, that constantly display the time or whatever. And then when you raise your wrist, now it goes into a higher power mode um, and kind of uh, brightens up and, and displays a little right. more. The history of computing has been a number of things, but but one of them has been that over time, battery technology gets better and power savings get better. And so we started with power books and iBooks years ago that you know, your best shot was at a four-hour to six-hour battery life. And then we got into MacBook Airs, and we started getting into eight-hour battery life, and then 10-hour battery life. And and we don't necessarily get those real-world unless we do peculiar things like turning off Bluetooth, turning off Wi-Fi, and dimming the screen, and things like that. But the the days of having the very best laptop you could buy having a three-hour battery life are over. And the days, you know, we, we went from, in mobile, we had Nokias that had a week worth of battery life and, and you know, a couple of days worth of talk time down to a phone that has to be charged every day because we do so much more with it. But we're starting to see those numbers creep back up. Every year, Apple announces that the phone and battery in iPhone is better than ever, right? And, and so... It's heading in the right direction, but really when you look at savings on recent devices... It's not about active use of them. It's the passive use. You know, one of the most revolutionary things about the iPad was it's got like 40 days of battery life if you don't touch it. So you could just leave it laying around and not on a charger and you go pick it up and you know it's going to be good to go. Uh, you know, for years, even just having your laptop clamshell, it would last, you know, less than a day and you need to charge it. Right. The, the thing is that there, there is a thirst and Apple knows it to be able to deliver better battery life. Absolutely. Okay, let's let's do an iPhone story for a second. This is a simple one. Um, are you getting an iPhone 8 or an iPhone 10? I'm going to try to get an iPhone 10. We'll see how that goes. And that could be difficult because... They're going to be hard to build. Why are they going to be hard to build? Uh, supposedly, it's related to the Face ID True Depth camera. Uh, Apple's having some trouble um, getting it manufactured, and that's kind of holding up production of the rest of the device. So... Uh, original forecasts had them building, you know, as many as 40 or 50 million phones this year. But now the latest uh, supply chain insiders are saying closer to 30 million. Um, and so it could be very, very difficult to get one in 2017. And the rumors are that Apple may not catch up with demand until somewhere midpoint 2018. Yeah, this is what happens when you shrink connect down to the size of your fingernail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a noble goal. It's something they've really done well, but they have to be able to produce them. And it's it's going to be difficult. And people scoff at the $1,000 starting price of the iPhone 10, but uh, Apple's going to sell a lot of them. So here's the question about a $1,000 pr- price point. Apple, once they have a price point established, 
they typically stick with that price point. It, it may fluctuate $100 this way or that from year to year, but for the most part, that price point stays. When they introduce new technology, a lot of times the price goes up and they try to get it down. You know, I think about the uh, MacBook Pro with Retina display. They kept around up until I think earlier this year, the entry level 13 inch MacBook without a Retina display and with a disk drive uh, for a number of reasons, including price point. And as we talked about, the MacBook Air still remains at that sub thousand dollar price point because they need to hit it. Well, they were also selling a ton of disk drives. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I think that, you know, $999 has a nice ring to it in terms of, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> whatever that is. But I, I mean, I could see the price coming down over the next two, three years. New technology always drives up the price and then Apple works to get the price down. And let's not forget that the iPhone is now more affordable than ever. You can get an iPhone SE for $350. And you can do a lot with that iPhone SE. A lot. I, I still use mine every day. I think it's great. Let's change gears again. MLB testing iPhone, Apple Watch, NFC technology. I'm excited about this. This is one of those under-the-radar iOS 11 features just because um, there are no applications for it out there yet. Nobody's really tapping into the NFC, but Apple finally opened it up. So if you think years ago there used to be on Android, you could buy like little tags uh, that you would stick somewhere, and as you went somewhere with your phone, it would change settings and stuff like that. This is Apple kind of opening up to that world of it, but in a more measured and, and, and uh, careful way. And what it's going to allow you to do is things like tapping your phone or your watch or whatever um, and having it validate who you are to enter a building or to, uh, you know, use services or whatever uh, without having to really interact or do much. It'll just know that it's you. It'll authenticate. And then this it'll is kind of like the, uh, the magic band that you get when you go to Disney, right? Exactly. Same technology behind it. Um, and I'm very excited for it. You know, there's a lot of things that I do in my daily life where it would be nice to not have to mess around with that kind of stuff. And you can think about how this integrates with, you know, different devices and, and things that you do in your daily life, your car, your door lock. Um, you know, I, I have a bike sharing service here in New York that does some NFC based stuff as those types of applications begin to adopt this feature in iOS 11. Uh, it's one of those things that's going to take a few years and it's going to slowly creep into our lives. And then one day it's going to dawn on you where you're like, oh, this is great. Uh, kind of like it reminds me of when um, Passbook first launched, now known as Apple Wallet. Uh, you know, it was everybody wanted to get passes, but Ticketmaster wasn't supporting it. Nobody else is supporting it. Now we all get our boarding passes on our phone. We get our tickets on our phone and it works great. Definitely. You know, the first demonstration of NFC that I saw was uh, at a Google I.O. show where all of the badges, all of the conference badges had NFC in it. And so instead of, you know, trying to scan a barcode on your badge, you just hold the phone up and NFC read the badge and people were sharing contacts via NFC. Well, now they use it at conferences to track where people go. And so they can say to vendors, you know, how much foot traffic they're getting in a certain area. And then they can redesign their conference the next year to to accommodate for those types of things. It, it, it has great applications, but also some creepy ones. Some people may not feel comfortable knowing that as they attend a conference, everywhere they walk is being tracked. Well, the way it works, it's near field communication. So you actually have to tap to use it. So you'll know when you're being tracked by it. No, that's not true. A lot of these you don't. Uh, NFC has to be close enough. Yeah, close you, enough. You have but to yeah, pretty much I, tap it. I attended a conference earlier this year where the, where the RFID reader was built into the badge that you wore, and they had cables that ran under the uh, – they, you know, they had those like plastic cable covers. And as you walked over them, it picked up where you were, and they tracked, and they knew where everyone wanted right, to conference. Right, RFID is not the same as NFC or Bluetooth beacons for that matter. So I would say that for NFC, it's still pretty much tap. 
Right. It's it's closer range. But yes, uh, you know, there were applications, like I said, for Android years ago where you didn't have to actually tap it like you got in your car and your phone was close enough and it would change to like a car mode or something. Well, like that. those used to use magnets in the back of the phone. Yes. Wow. That's history for you. All right. <laughs> Let's talk back about the Google event for just a second. Let's talk specifically about the speakers that were announced. Okay. So there's a Google Home was the speaker product, AI product in the past. And mm-hmm. I had one for a while. It was quite nice. I liked it. It's like it one was, thirty. It was one twenty nine. And yeah, it was a great little product. One of the best things that it did was that it was the first thing to work with. But before it even worked with any home automation kind of products, it worked with Chromecast. And so, if you had a Chromecast connected to a TV, you could kick off videos simply by speaking. It also right. worked very well with YouTube for Music or any of the other music services. So you could kick off music and have that play through the big speakers or the small speaker. Um, it was really aware of, of the other AV products in the house. So you could say, you know, play this from YouTube at my TV, and it would come through the good speakers, right? Right. They, they then expanded it to more home automation partners. And now they're coming with a wider suite of speakers. They've got the Google Home Mini, which is launching at $49. And they announced the Google Home Max, which has two speaker drivers in it and attempts to use its microphones to sense the room and EQ itself for the room, similar to how uh, the the promise of, of the Apple HomePod. Yeah, you see them here addressing two different segments of the market, right? At $49, they're going after the Amazon Echo Dot um, and they're even going to be bundling that thing for free with the new phones, the Pixel 2. And then at $399, they're actually more expensive than the Apple HomePod. Uh, and the feature set between the Google Home Max and the Apple HomePod are very similar in many ways. Um, so I think that, you know, they, they see this as a space where they can get some traction for sure. Um, and potentially maybe even sell at $50 many more units than they'll sell phones. Um, and this, to me... Uh, between that and Chromecast and Roku announced a new $80 4K player. Isn't it the stick, $70 uh, 4K week. player stick? Yeah, $70 or whatever it is. Uh, this, to me, shows where Apple, the success that they've had in introducing lower-cost iPhones by keeping legacy designs and hardware around is something that they need to employ a little more aggressively, um, certainly as the HomePod lineup uh, matures and continues to expand in the years to come. Uh, there is a market for these types of devices. And, you know, at, starting at $150 for an Apple TV and 180 or whatever for Apple TV with 4K, uh, Apple prices itself out of the market with people that aren't locked into the iTunes ecosystem. And uh, at $350 for a HomePod, uh, they're pricing themselves out of the uh, home assistant market as well. Now, that's by design. Apple made it very clear when they announced the HomePod that this is not meant to be a Siri machine. It's meant to be a high-end music player. But there is certainly a market for cheaper devices that can do your home assistant stuff. And that plays a very important part in HomeKit and all that. And Apple's solution to that may be different than we think, right? It may end up being uh, the AirPlay 2 integration uh, may be how they address that market rather than going after $50 speakers and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know how successful that strategy would be. And certainly, you know, with Apple Watch and with iPhone always listening, um, with uh, she shall not be named to invoke, 
they have th- their way of responding to it currently on the market, but I still think that there may be a market for those super cheap uh, TV players and speakers that allow people to to speak to their personal assistant. I, I agree, and you know it's worth mentioning that these these low cost, super low cost products like the the forty nine dollar dot or the home mini, uh, they get cheaper around the holiday seasons. They right. you know the the thing that's forty nine dollars we discounted to thirty nine dollars will be discounted to twenty nine dollars. Uh, so so for example, home mini, right? They're they're being sold through Walmart. They launched through Walmart. Walmart has a partnership with Google Shopping or Google Express Shopping because Walmart purchased Jet. And so if you purchase, if you make your first purchase through Google Express Shopping is the home mini from Walmart, then you automatically get a $25 discount right off the top. Right. So your your home mini already becomes 25 bucks, basically. Uh then then figure the discounts at holiday season, it goes down even less. So so this thing is going to be their effort to be widespread. I I am interested in it. Now, Chromecast was always kind of a bad deal for me because I don't like using my phone as the remote. There are some people right. that very much do like that because their phone is the thing that's always with them, always has charge, as opposed to a remote that may or may not have charge. But Or, or they have to fumble through the couch cushions for or figure out which way to orient it or all of the complaints that remotes have, right? But Chromecast was always a little clunkier just because of the speed of, of getting the interface to remote control on the phone. There's a delay mm-hmm. between when it recognizes that something's being cast and then it should just display the remote controls. Using voice fixes a lot of that. So I'm I'm tempted. And I'm tempted in a way that I wouldn't be if I were looking at the Apple HomePod at the $349 price point. Yeah, I think that, that uh, you know, when you always have your phone on you and, and your iPad laying around and all the new devices are always listening and your watch on your wrist, interacting with Siri is not as high of a priority, I think, for Apple. Um, and I think that they could address a lot of this with, especially because Siri is done through the cloud. So having AirPlay 2 speakers with microphones that, uh, you know, you could address those price points without Apple themselves having to make the hardware. I can see that problem being addressed in that way, um, and them not really caring about those fifty dollars devices because it's not a market that they need to compete in. The TV I see a little bit differently, and I think that Apple knew this, and that's why they kept the series the, 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 the third generation. Oh, the sixty-nine dollars. No, the, the third, third gen. Yeah, yeah, it dropped to like you know seventy bucks or whatever it was, um, and they kept it around for you know a year or so, and then they dropped it because it wasn't running TVOS. And I understand why they dropped it, but. Um, the introduction of the Apple TV 4K has not pushed down the fourth generation Apple TV in price enough. At 150, it's just not cheap enough. And so I don't know if it's a streaming stick, so to speak, or if it's a new low power box running, you know, an A9 chip or whatever, however they do it. But I think they have to get to that sub $100 price point. They don't necessarily have to go to the $50, $60 price point, but I think at $99, which let's not forget is what the Apple TV used to cost. Um, I think that they've con- they've conceded that market in a way, and it would make sense for Apple uh, at some point, hopefully relatively soon, you know, in the next year, to introduce a new entry level one that maybe you know doesn't have all the capabilities of the high end, you know, certainly doesn't have to do 4K or anything like that. But they are seeding that market in a way that it seems unnecessary. Well, to me. so let's talk about how people consume this kind of media. People use Netflix. People use right. Hulu. Some people use Amazon Prime Instant Video which is its yep. own 
debacle about when or not we'll have that on Apple TV. iTunes content if you're an Apple user. iTunes content if you're an Apple user, although not necessarily, right? Because right. there there are people but, that are uh, app- likelihood. Well, there there are people that are all in on Apple hardware but haven't bought anything from the iTunes ecosystem in years. Right. Or maybe they have Apple Music or something, but yeah. Sling and and PS View kind of options because those are the ones that offer live TV kind of streaming. Sure, and then uh, HBO Now. Sure. So, you know, I, I was thinking of Sling and PS View because they offer multiple channels, where HBO is pretty much HBO content. Um, right. Well, you could say Netflix is just Netflix. Well, content, there's that. So. so you're right, but but I would say that Netflix has uh, bigger numbers than HBO in terms of subscribers. Probably, yeah. So it makes sense, you know, for for Apple users who are all in on buying iTunes content, then the Apple TV makes tons of sense. And especially when, as you you know, you were telling me before we started recording, the idea of Apple upgrading all of your stuff to Blu-ray style 4K content. Yeah, we, we ran our Apple TV 4K uh, review last week and, and Mike did the review. And one thing that he noted in there that I didn't even think of is if you're heavily invested in iTunes content and you upgrade to an Apple TV 4K and you have a 4K TV, uh, that's a lot of ands required to really get the yeah. most out of it. But a lot having of said that, um, sure, but... Uh, if you are one of those people upgrading to an Apple TV 4K in itself is kind of, you know, in a way pays for itself, because if you wanted to go through and upgrade your entire Blu-ray collection, for example, to 4K, a lot of those discs cost $35, $40 for 4K Blu-rays. And if you have that collection on iTunes, um, your movies are automatically upgraded to 4K when you stream them to the new box. So you're going to be getting your entire iTunes music library upgraded. And if you're looking at, you know, a minimum $20 a pop for those films and you own 50 films, which is not that uncommon for somebody who's invested heavily in iTunes, uh, you could end up seeing it as a very good deal. Having said that, most people probably don't have a 4K TV or not heavily invested in iTunes movies. And so therefore the $200 price point or 180, whatever it is for the, for the lower capacity model, is a little yeah. too high. So should those people buy the Roku stick? <sighs> I mean, I like the Apple TV. Uh, I'm very happy with mine. I upgraded without hesitation. Um, I like the apps. I like the flexibility. I like how speedy the interface is. I like that it's not Amazon trying to advertise to me. Um, I like going on there and browsing for games and seeing the new stuff that's coming out. I'm looking forward to the new game from that game company, which is going to be exclusive to tvOS and iOS. I like, um, you know, the easier integration. I like uh, single subscriber sign-on or whatever that single sign-on for uh, cable subscribers and stuff. Um, and I like knowing that the platform is going to grow and that I'll be able to get these software updates and new apps as they come out. Uh, not everybody cares about that. Like you said, some people just want Netflix. We, we had a, we had a big them, discussion in the Apple Insider HQ you know, when, we, when the cabal got together and we discussed all of these things. Um, <laughs> there are a number of people on the Apple Insider staff who now shall not be named who use Amazon Fire TV products. And, and right. I'll admit, I, I don't know, I've got one here. I've, I've had a number of Amazon Fire Sticks come through the house because they're affordable, and I've got the, the box here. And you were really the only one who was truly offended by the idea of Amazon using part of its interface space to advertise shows to you. I just, you know, like I was rambling on earlier about, about Google, I just don't want to be advertised to all the time. I just don't, especially if I'm spending $50, $60, $70 on your stuff, you know? Like, th- that's, well, no, so, I, I don't... So there's I, the, we're advertising a show to you perspective from it. But the other side is discoverability. And one of the things we've talked about with app stores has been, how do you discover things? 
And so here they're surfacing content because they think that it might be interesting for you to watch, which is the same thing Netflix does, except Netflix puts it in a row that's called, because you watched this, you might like this other thing, right? They're, they're all trying to find okay, a way but- to solve this problem of how do they keep you engaged with their content at the same time, how do they try and show you things that they think you'll like? I may be completely wrong on this, but I'm going to take a wild guess that if you don't have Amazon Prime and you sign into an Amazon streaming stick, you are constantly getting bombarded with advertisements to sign up for Amazon Prime. Just a hunch. You know, that's a tough question because I I have never seen anyone sign into a Fire Stick that doesn't already have Prime. Right. Because you're in the Amazon ecosystem already, so and it makes sense for you to want to stream their, their shows. Do you have Prime? I have Prime, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, but hey, you know, App- Apple's guilty of this crap too. You know, Apple yes. Music. I, yeah. I, I have to go in and I have to um, uh, disable. I, I go into the um, uh, the restrictions on my iOS device to turn off access to Apple Music through the Music app because I don't pay for Apple Music. And then if I tap on a song that I want to buy through another app and it links to it, it won't take me to the iTunes store. It takes me to Apple Music, and then it says, oh, sign up for Apple Music, and you can stream all you want. It's like, no, I just want to buy the album. I don't want to pay you $15 a month to rent my music from you. I just want to own the albums. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't like it when Apple does it. I don't like it when anybody does it. I don't want your services. That's fine. I know you got to advertise them. You can advertise them to me once, and then goodbye. I say no, I'm done. Yeah, Goodbye. The, the way that Amazon has really done this in the past on the TV sticks has been to show which shows are available with Prime as a part of the, the streaming account for that versus which ones cost. Right. And and for a while, for yeah. you know, they, they have some that are you can watch this with Prime and stream it free, and they have other things that, that cost whether you're a Prime subscriber or not. But they don't push those as much as they just simply label them so you can see the costs versus Prime. I'll give you an example of why Amazon leaves a bad taste in my mouth and why I have no interest in trying a Fire TV stick. I still buy Blu-rays, and I only buy them if they come with an iTunes digital copy so that I can easily download it to my iPad when I travel or just stream it to my Apple TV if I want. But I like having the physical copy for a number of reasons, including I don't have to worry about how good my internet's working. I can just pop in a disc, and I know it's going to look good. Amazon is in a dispute with Disney. I don't know what their dispute is, whatever the contract is, whatever. But Amazon gives no crap about their customers or the ability of their customers to access the content that they want or to buy the products that they want. Because if you go to Amazon and you try to buy a new Marvel movie, I happen to be a big Marvel nerd and Disney owns Marvel, and you try to get a new release coming out on Blu-ray, they won't allow pre-orders. A lot of times when the disc comes out, they won't even allow you to sell it, to buy it through Amazon or Prime. You have to get it through a reseller on there, which charges shipping and usually has a markup on it, just because of their contract dispute. And and they say, hey, we're happy to stream it to you on, on, on Amazon. Go ahead and rent it from us. You can, you can rent it for, from our service, but they won't sell you the disc. And it's hostile to consumers. It's absolutely a stupid experience. And so I end up going to Best Buy to buy these Blu-rays because I don't want to mess around with Amazon and going on there and I can't find them. And so I'll do the same thing. I think the new Spider-Man Homecoming is coming out in a few weeks. I'm not going to buy it through Amazon. I'll just buy it through Best Buy. Yeah, and Amazon has done this kind of thing before, specifically with their not allowing uh, Chromecast to work with Amazon and not selling They've Chromecast done it with and Apple. not selling Apple, Apple TV on it also. They just started selling the new Apple TV, or they didn't start selling it, they listed it as of last week, because now they've worked out a deal that... Uh, uh, that their their streaming service well, is going to become the Apple they, TV. So the streaming service has been announced. The Amazon Instant Video for Apple TV was announced back over the summer. Right. It was done as a project a long time ago, 
It has not been released because they just did the announcement on their new Fire TV products. And so they want to milk as much sales of their Fire TV products as they can before they release it for anyone else's device. So... And, and this is the one area where Amazon has a leg up on Apple. That's it, is is selling TV streaming devices. And they want to use that leverage for everything that they can. But they also realize that they're missing out on Prime subscribers, which is their, their main bread and butter. And they're also missing out on active, passionate users by not having it on right. TVOS. This is, uh, so there's an anonymous Amazon Fire TV developer who posted to Reddit and uh, basically vented about his, his displeasure. But it, explaining this is what's happened, is that the product's been done. And they can't f- address any new bugs in it because they need people beating on it to reveal where the problems are. You know, right. at some point you find as many bugs as you can and you release something to the world. Yeah. And then by actually having consumers try it, you find things that you hadn't right. been able to find and test. And, and yeah. so they've had this finished and it's been sitting in limbo waiting for higher ups to decide that it's okay to release it. And it's been held up by, by things like this announcement of the new hardware. So now they want to get all the sales that they can of it before they release the product for the competitor product. And no company is perfect, but Amazon pulls this crap so often, so many times, that I just it, it, it really sours me on them as a company. Yeah, well, as you say, no one's perfect. The, uh, no. the, the thing that they did get right is that their Alexa for fire devices is the same full Alexa that you get on any of the other products that they have where Siri is different on every device. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that they didn't get right that Google home got right first and Chromecast got right first was the ability to voice control media and specifically from a speaker to control the TV device with fire TV for the longest time. If you had an, a, a dot or a tap or an echo running Alexa it had no awareness that there was a Fire TV in the house or even the same area, even though you were signed into the Alexa app on both. So they knew from your account status that you had both devices. And it was only relatively recently that they decided that it was okay to control by voice from a speaker to the TV. And even then, you have to use specific vocabulary. You can't uh, make up your syntax and have it understand it yet. You know, Apple already has the groundwork laid with continuity. They need to make their platforms better at talking to each other. And that's an example of where Siri could do a lot better. I mean, it's absolutely inexcusable to me that you can have Siri on your Mac and it will not control your HomeKit devices. I mean, come on. Like, that's nuts. Why can't I use Siri on my phone to control my Apple TV? Why can't I use it on my Mac to control HomeKit? Why can't I tell Siri on my watch to do something on my iPad? I, I don't know. That's a good I, question. I do right? not know. <laughs> and I agree. It should. Those are the it should kind of work. things You should be able to do these things. Those are the kind of things that, that when Apple goes slow, it hurts them. And, and that's something where they need to uh, really bring down the barriers between their own platforms. Now, we were talking augmented reality a little bit in terms of the technology and micro LED displays. Let's talk augmented reality from a product perspective. There's a, a kid's toy that is going to be an Apple Store exclusive that mm-hmm. uses iOS devices to do augmented reality. This is uh, the company Seedling has a product called Parker the Bear. And Parker the Bear has sort of a, an interesting pattern on his belly, and he has wooden accessories, and he allow it comes with a doctor's kit and so you can do x-ray bibs that trigger auto- augmented reality responses in the corresponding app 
Uh, kids can diagnose ailments with the thermometer and stethoscope. And, and basically, it's a cool kind of toy because it has augmented reality. It can teach a little bit about science, a little bit about technology, and and basic biology using the doctor part of the, the... What's interesting to me is that this is something that Apple has been looking for and looking at for ages. You know, I've attended New York Toy Fair age, years ago uh, at E3... We covered that there was a, a product similar to this. It wasn't the same one, but it instead used augmented reality in the iOS app to tell stories. And mm-hmm. every time I go to one of these events, there are people that I know from Apple that I see hovering around the tables talking to these people. Yeah, This is something that, that has been interesting to Apple for a long time because they know, first of all, kids loving using their iPad and, and back in the days, iPod touches, that these sorts of toys bridge the gap between the technology and what can be learned. And so I am, I am actually kind of happy to see Seedling get this one into the store because I know how long Apple have been looking for a product like this. Yeah, it's, it's a cool, unique um, application for augmented reality. And, and that's something to me that's exciting about it is, is augmented reality being used in ways that you don't necessarily anticipate or, or ways that uh, make the product offer something more than just, you know, oh, look at that, that's cool. You know, opportunities to learn and interact with a device that you wouldn't normally think of are always exciting. Yeah, and this isn't the first time that there's been an iOS device that enables some kind of learning or education with a physical product. Um, you know, right. the the Wowie Minion that allows you to program it in Scratch for which way it should drive is an example. And similarly, the Sphero Spark and Sphero Droid Star Wars robots that uh, Mike is going to be writing about really shortly um, yep. all allow you to program the robots to drive, in, you know, basically like the turtle did in Logo years ago. Tell turtle to move forward 90, left 90, right 90, right 45, whatever. The same kind of thing that you can do on Code.org on screen now using basically what's MIT Scratch as the language or, mm-hmm. or for that matter, Swift Playgrounds to control the Sphero robots. But the child that wants to learn how to control robots is not necessarily the same child that wants to hold a plush bear and play doctor and learn biology. Not everyone is meant to be a programmer. And I am I am pleased to see that there's more than just driving robots around. Yeah, totally agree. Let's talk. We've got a number of, of basically short stories here that I think we should mention. Tell me about Nike Run Club and the Nike Plus Watch that you're looking for. Nike Plus Watch uh, just started shipping, actually. I think it comes out this Friday. Um, so when you're listening to this, it's out. Um, and that is basically just the the regular Apple Watch Series 3, but uh, with a different band and a little bit of different branding underneath. But, but externally, it looks pretty much the same. Um, and they've accordingly updated the Nike Plus Run Club app for Apple Watch, which you can download to any Apple Watch. A little more full-featured, you can view um, a list of recent runs and not just your last run. Uh, you can get uh, audible updates and training and stuff directly from the watch. So this is an effort to make the watch more independent of the phone and gives you capabilities that used to be required to connect to the phone for. Uh, now it just does it on the watch itself. So you know, as we talked about um, last week and on my Apple Watch review, I think that with Apple Watch Series 3 getting more independence and more horsepower, we're going to see more powerful apps coming out that uh, do more more without the phone nearby and this is a great example of it the uh studio three headphones uh roger just got these in the mail this week uh apple just started shipping them this kind of completes the transition of the beats line wireless to apple's w1 chip for syncing and and switching between devices this is the high-end studio three uh wireless headphones 
Um, and we will have a review in the coming days. But if you were holding out for those, which were conspicuously absent from the W1 launch last year, uh, it has now been brought to the entire Beats yeah, line. Now, this has pure adaptive noise canceling. So right. does that make this a worthwhile competitor to the Bose? Potentially, yeah. I mean, uh, I think a big part of uh, headphones is not only the technological capabilities, but also the aesthetics, um, which is one of the reasons that Apple got into the Beats brand uh, and does it separately from their own uh, headphone products like AirPods and EarPods. Uh, but yeah, I mean, by all accounts, uh, this probably is, you know, you'll have to wait for a review. I haven't tested them, but I think certainly for, for people that, that like Beats headphones, this would be a good competitor and something to stand up to Bose products. You know, that's the question that I get asked from time to time is what's the best pair of headphones for the airplane? And, uh, you know, it's a tough call that there are people that just asked me recently about this. And I said, listen, it's okay to use Bluetooth headphones on the airplane. And they're, they're, they were shocked. Right. You mean you're not going to get asked to turn them off? <laughs> well, for a lot of these Bluetooth headphones, they offer wired options as well, which is Yes, great. and the Studio 3 do. They, you can use the wire yep. or you can use the, uh, the Bluetooth capability. Yeah, I'm a fan of that. But the last thing you, you know, I, I have on a number of flights, when you've got a cable and it's tangled up and you're trying to wrestle it as you get out of that small cramped seat that's too small for safety anyway, it's, uh, it's a nuisance. There have been occasions on flights where I've simply worn Bluetooth headphones and it's been fine. But they charge with micro USB. Apple, what are you doing? Using a cable that a lot of people have. <laughs> yeah, except not the whole lineup does that. Uh, you know, you can get um, uh, the the Beats, uh, I don't know, the ones that drape around your neck uh, charge through lightning. You know, it's a good question. Uh, the... So, so you want to use a cable that's common. You want to use one that's not too expensive if you can help it, because people do cry about expensive lightning cables. You want to use one that's got a decent connector that's not going to get screwed up. Now, micro USB tends to fail for me on that last one. Uh, it, it's just a terrible connector. I, I, yeah. I, every time I deal with someone with support issue where I've got a problem and I'm talking to them, their answer is, "Can you go try another micro USB cable?" Because the the truth <laughs> is that like something terrible like one in six fails i you know yeah. just go try another one it takes and and literally i got told by a support rep we had a guy here who tried 10 different ones before we found one that worked it's just nuts i it think is. that apple for the entire beats lineup should either switch to usb3 or uh, or i'm sorry usb-c or uh lightning i i think that micro usb needs to go i think it will i think the usb-c transition is coming it's just one that's slow going yeah, I mean, they sell a lot of Beats headphones to people that don't own Apple products, and that's the reason they do it, but, eh. All considerations, right? There's compromise to be made everywhere in product. There's a reason the iPhone 8 still ships with a headphone adapter, and there's reason that future iPhones will probably still continue to ship with headphone adapters. Yes. Now, one of the things that you and I have talked about, you know, in just the past week has been charging speeds, and particularly with relationship to, to wireless charging. You know, we, we know that wireless charging is going to be slower than using a cable, or particularly using a cable on a large power brick. The question is, just how slow is it? Well, our video department did a great test uh, this week, and you have to remember that there is a firmware update coming for the iPhone 8 and later for the iPhone 10 that's going to increase wireless charging speeds to 7.5 watts. But currently it's at 5 watts, um, and that's slow. But it matches the dinky charger that apple ships in the, the box cube. So, yeah uh 
this is you know I've railed on Apple for this for a while. It's bad with the with the iPad. It's bad with the iPhone. They need to ship this thing with a higher capacity charger. If you have a 12 watt iPad charger, use that with your phone. It'll charge faster. And if you want to spend money, go get the 29 watt charger for the MacBook uh, 12 inch MacBook, and then get a USB C to Lightning cable, or go on Amazon and find yourself a 29 watt uh charger and a third party USB C to lightning cable or something because it's crazy that <laughs> it's crazy that they still ship it with this dinky little adapter. But it's just as bad as the wireless charging. The wireless charging is going to get a little bit better, but it still won't be as good as quick charge. I think for most people the 7.5 watts will be fine. Um but if you really need it in a pinch um and you know you only got 30 minutes to charge or whatever, you're going to want the full uh quick charge capabilities. Yeah. Now, we sent Mikey to go to the GoPro event. Mm-hmm. What happened at the event? So GoPro has a new Hero 6 camera out uh, that looks pretty cool. Um, they um, are now supporting uh, the, what do they H-V-C? call it? H- HEVC, yeah. which is a new, Apple's pushing this very hard with the new iPhone 8 and 10. Um it's built into high Sierra support for it. And so coincidentally, GoPro is also looking to embrace it. It's a new compression format that um, it's a codec that allows for 4k video to be a lot more reasonable in size than it normally has been, which will save you space on your SD card in your GoPro or space on your phone and, and what have you. Um, and for most people, the compression of it, it does result in a little bit lower quality, um, especially for photos. Um, and Max, our video guy, did a comparison this week that really did a great show of how that affects it. Uh, but the file size is like half the size. So most people aren't going to notice the difference in quality and the file size savings are going to be huge for them. So the Hero 6 um, is basically a, you know, a minor update. Uh, they've got more uh, higher frame rates at higher resolutions, the kind of things that you would expect. But having used the Hero 5 Black last year... Um, it's a really great product. Um, it has waterproof and weatherproofing now that does not require a case. So I used it in uh, earlier this year in Lake Tahoe, and I had a GoPro Hero 3 Black that I used alongside the Hero 5. And not having that external case on it made a huge difference in terms of picture quality because having that plastic cover the lens is really bad for picture quality, especially in cold conditions. Um, the, the picture quality was much better. So if you if you have a Hero 4 or Hero 3, um, you should look at the Hero 6. Um, if you have a Hero 5, it's probably not worth the upgrade. Um, some minor tweaks and, and improvements here and there, but uh, let's be honest, you're not doing anything that cool that you need to spend another $400 on another camera. The more exciting thing that's coming that I thought was really cool is this Fusion camera. So Fusion is a 360-degree camera. And one of the things that they're going to do, and this isn't coming until 2018, it's going to be a software update for the Fusion camera. But So it records all around you, right? Uh, it has cameras on both sides. It gets a 360-degree view of the world. You think, well, what can I do with that video? Well, GoPro has a bunch of different neat gimmicks you can do. Like one of the things they showed was a guy, uh, 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 he was on a parachute. He was parasailing or whatever. And he had the 360-degree camera in front of him. But they did a thing where they digitally removed the pole that was holding the camera so you couldn't see it. So it just looked like the camera was suspended in front of him and he was just, it was just like floating in front of him. And then what you can do in post is you can pan the camera around and you can show what he's looking at and then pan it back to him and then go back and all that. But the thing that I thought was really, really cool was they did a demo where a guy went to a skate park 
and he was skating in a bowl and he set up the fusion 360 degree camera in the middle of it and then he skated all around the camera and then when he was done he went and he grabbed his iphone and then he essentially directed the scene so he transferred it over streamed or whatever to his phone and then using the gyroscopes and sensors on his iphone he moved his camera his phone around in the physical world to track himself in the video and basically cropped the 360 degree video so he has all this footage right of, of the world that not a lot of us going on he just wants to focus on himself as he's skating around so he held his phone up and moved it around and followed himself in real time from the recording and then what that did was it it tracked where his phone went and then cropped that to a 16 by 9 standard video format and then you could upload that to the internet so you could this is like the basically the shoot generation of video editing right you just set up this 360 degree camera do whatever and then afterwards you direct it yourself because it captured everything wow it's pretty wild yeah i'm, I'm not kidding when i say it's the Wii generation kind of video editing right you have to stand <laughs> up and actually wave your arms to to make it work but it recuts for you as you do that right and it takes something that if you try to do it, you know, we talk so many times about things that work better on an iPad or an iPhone than they do on a Mac. If you tried to edit 360 degree video on your Mac and do that kind of thing, it would take you longer. And the product, the output, unless you were an expert in editing 360 degree video, the output wouldn't be as good. Now you can do it simply, easily with devices that fit in your pocket and using the small form factor and the technology built into it, the gyroscopes and sensors and everything else. You can do stuff that you could never do on your Mac. Absolutely. So, Neil, this brings us near to the end of another perfectly good episode. What, what would you like to talk about last? Do we have anything else? Man, there was so much going on this week. I think we, I think we covered most of it. I think we have. It's been a big week with a lot of news, and I am glad you're here to talk about it. Cool. I will let everybody know that uh, tomorrow or that today, as you're listening to this, as we release it on Friday, I will be at the uh, Johnny Ive interview, uh, the New Yorker Tech Summit um, in Manhattan. So keep your eyes peeled for coverage of that this weekend. Uh, very excited to hear what he has to say. And we want to thank you all for going to iTunes and leaving us those great reviews. And if you're so inclined, please feel free to do it again. I, I really do appreciate your comments and feedback. Yeah, we saw that we got a lot of reviews these last few weeks. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody that has gone and left reviews for us. We appreciate it and it helps us a great deal. So thank you again. All right. This is the end of a perfectly good episode, episode 141. I'm Victor Marks. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L, and you can read my stuff, including the Johnny Ive interview on appleinsider.com. <laughs>